Thanks for listening to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitor. So water companies have attracted a lot of criticism recently, as, as you're well aware, Neil. They certainly have, and yeah. deservedly too, in my view. <laughs> so we've had sewage in the rivers. And uh, as you remember, we had water campaigner and former undertone, Fergal Sharkey, on to, to complain about that. And we've also recently had an episode with Brett Christophers, who was the academic in Sweden, who's written a book looking at the questions thrown up by asset managers owning vital infrastructure like water companies. And do they have incentives to do the right thing or are they just cash cows to be milked? Yeah. Um, Milk several times a day, I would say. <laughs> so we thought we might drill down, as they say, and fuse these two issues and look at the finances of the English water companies. Now, that's the financial flows as opposed to the rather more noxious kind that have been going into the rivers. And are they any less noxious, these financial ones? Well, looking at the totality, I would say certainly not. But to help us to help us look at all this, we thought we're joined today by David Hall, who's a visiting professor at Greenwich University and a long-time watcher of the privatised utilities, and has thought a lot about these questions. So welcome, David. Very pleased to be here. And yes, I spent far more of my life than I ever expected or would have wished to uh, looking at the finances of these companies. Well, so they're back in the news again for the umpteenth time because the water and sewage companies, which have been under tremendous attack in recent months for not doing enough, not investing enough to stop sewage seeping into our rivers, yet at the same time, they are paying huge dividends. They paid $1.4 billion in dividends in 2022, up from 540 million the previous year, so almost three times. Those are ultimately, of course, paid for by households through their water bills. So what's going on? <laughs> well, what, what's going on is, well, is what's been going on more or less since privatisation, which was uh, 33, 34 years ago now. Yeah. 1.4 billion in the last year it is just about average over that 33-year period. In total, they've taken out something over 50 billion in dividends, which uh, works out about one and a half billion a year. And so what's going on now has been going on since the start. There was uh, some surprise at the level of dividends being extracted in the early 90s. And I think then we could see one important early way in which uh, this was being done because of course we all expected that the regulator would fix prices at a level that gave a decent deal to consumers and prevented the overexploitation of private monopolies which we've known about as a danger since uh, John Stuart Mill first wrote about natural monopolies 200 years ago. One intellectual service the companies have done is to demonstrate beautifully exactly what John Stuart Mill was talking about and why he was so right. If you get uh, private investors holding a public uh, network uh, monopoly, then they will exploit it much more yeah. than uh, we might, well, 
I would argue slightly differently to that. I think that the privatisation was something which was, I would say, politically neutral. But I think that the real problem was the very weak uh, regulation of the companies. They were privatised with no debt and were given this huge incentive, essentially, to replace the vast amount of equity that they had to start with, with debt, which they have done very effectively while taking out the dividends. I would argue that it really is a failure of regulation rather than the fact that these are effective regional monopolies. Two things. Firstly, I I question whether it's politically neutral in the broadest sense. One of the striking things about uh, water privatisation and uh, also energy privatisation is that it has always been massively unpopular with the public at large. Before Mrs Thatcher carried out the privatisations, opinion polls were showing two-thirds or more opposed to them. Immediately afterwards, that was true, and it's still true today. There are three-to-one majorities against it. People as consumers were always aware this was a bad deal. Uh, Secondly, yes, uh, in one sense, it's clearly true to say it's a failure of regulation. But I think that omits the obvious fact that once companies have got themselves in this position, they will work extremely hard to game the regulatory system, to capture the regulator, and they will invest a lot of time and energy in doing just that. And if I can just give one early example, the first regulatory deal was settled in 1994. That was based on investment pro- expected investment programs and uh, Offwatt said okay based on Sorry, this Offwatt is the water regulator just so we're clear yeah based on this investment program you can put up prices by however much it was terrific for over the next five years within I think a matter of six weeks possibly a couple of months the companies suddenly started announcing we've discovered new efficiencies in our uh, capital investment uh, method and so we won't have to spend at least about 200 million of that over the coming year. And we're pleased to tell shareholders we're going to give it all to you as an extra dividend. Huh? Now, that was at the time a fairly shockingly cynical exercise, but simply was gaming the regulatory framework. And that same fairly obvious gaming actually happened repeatedly for the next three, four, five year um, settlements. So we have gaming of regulation is a reason why the regulatory system doesn't work. I have a slightly different take from Neil, which is I think that this question of it's not because it's a monopoly, it's because it's been poorly regulated is a slightly false distinction because the reason these businesses are are regulated is precisely because they are monopolies. Now, there were a number of monopoly business industries that were regulated when they were privatized and the one that comes immediately to mind is telecoms regulation proved reasonably effective in that case because there was competition on the way it wasn't a natural monopoly it just happened to be a monopoly under british telecom that had been established by the government but in the case of water and electricity these monopolies were far harder to shift So therefore, the regulator was on a permanent, in theory, a permanent kind of overwatch, trying to make sure that there weren't abuses. 
I do think David is right that there have been abuses over a long period and also a failure of regulators to really understand whose interests they were protecting, whether they were protecting the solvency of the water companies and their ability to do their job or whether they were protecting customers from the bills that were going to come their way. I seem to remember a few years ago looking at this whole question of where these debts actually came from because they are enormous and someone has to pay them off (laughs) and not only will that be a burden but interest rates which were very low when they were taken on are now going up which will add to that burden on, on consumers in coming years. Those debts, as Neil correctly says, were zero at privatisation because the government obligingly paid them all off in 1989. They are now, I think, actually, more than you said, David, I think they're about 60 billion, according to this article. And the analysis which I saw, which is probably about five years ago now, showed that the companies, through their cash flows, could have paid for all the investment that has been done since privatisation. So the original logic was we need to privatise these businesses so that they can fund investment. They actually had, through their bills that they were receiving, they, they were sending to the customers, the cash flow to fund all the investment. All of that $60 billion, in effect, has been to pay financial returns to the owners. And you have to ask yourself, was that actually the intention? <laughs> I would say it wasn't. And to say that that is somehow something that has slipped through the net and the regulator has kind of just been bamboozled seems to me to avoid the fact that in aggregate, this is a mess. The original purpose of the whole privatisation has turned out to be unnecessary. I I mean, all I would say, I would make two points, really. Firstly, the idea that if the industry had remained in public ownership, that the necessary investment in the infrastructure would have taken place is a fantasy. It wouldn't have done. The government would have helped itself one way or another to any surplus because that's what governments do. And that was one reason why privatisation seemed like a good idea because it was generally acknowledged that the, the industry had suffered from a huge underinvestment for a long time, like every other nationalised industry, because that's what happens. I think that I would come back to my point that if the rules governing the spending of the companies and the gearing that they were allowed to take on had been enforced more effectively Mm. and rigorously, then I think we would be in a much better place now. What I would say, the logic of what you just said, Neil is that it is worth paying £60 billion in debts to avoid the government basically not investing over a period. To me, that seems a strange argument. But anyway, David, over to you. Yeah, okay. just picking up a few points that that, that have been made, the first of which uh, was you you said that um, it's a monopoly and therefore it's regulated. We should remind ourselves of two things. Firstly, Mill's conclusion from pointing out the problem of um, natural monopolies being overexploited by the private sector was, and so we should ensure that such sectors are in public ownership. That was John Stuart Mill's uh, conclusion from that, not regulation. And also that's the conclusion that the vast majority of the rest of the world has come to. Over 90% of the world's water is in public ownership and public hands, including all across the USA and across uh, countries like Germany, even in countries like France that used 
privatization by concession are uh, reversing that. Secondly, in terms of the regulatory behavior and intentions, I don't think it's about the intentions of the regulator, but another thing that has happened in practice is something that's been well recognized in sort of literature about regulation, principally based in the USA, and that is because the companies work really hard at fixing regulation, regulators get captured, in inverted commas. And it's pretty clear that's what's happened here. One way you can see it is the exchange of personnel, perhaps the most striking of which is that the person who was uh, CEO of Offwatt uh, five years ago is now director of Thames Water. Apart from uh, assessing um, uh, public interest, private interests of the companies, they are assessing their own career prospects. Well, this is a very, very clear case, I think, of uh, regulatory capture. Jonathan, you're quite right about the investment being covered by, uh, by the cash flows. And two comments on that. One is that this is the classic way in which public investment in water and sewage takes place. Quite often through temporary large increases in consumer charges. And so what these companies are doing is actually using public techniques. The extreme example of that at the moment is the biggest single bit of sewage infrastructure investment that's going on, and that is the Thames Tideway Tunnel, which is being financed not by Thames' enormous Chinese, uh, Middle Eastern, and North American uh, shareholders, but by charging us consumers extra, a surcharge. The equity being put into this investment is coming from surcharging consumers. And Neil, coming back on on the point that you made about the investment wouldn't have happened, I, I respectively disagree on that because the reason why we knew the investment was going to happen was because it was required under EU regulations. And so whoever owned it would have had to do it. Okay. Can we turn to another issue, which is also thrown up by these latest debates around the water company dividends, which is the question of transparency? Because one of the odd things about this is the newspapers write, these companies are paying dividends and the number of 1.4 billion is said. But the companies then say in response, oh, no, we're not. We're not paying any dividends at all or we're paying much smaller dividends. And it seems that one of the reasons this debate is, uh, has taken hold is because it's very difficult to understand exactly what is going on inside these structures. Maybe, David, you can enlighten us a bit about why, why on earth is it that no one knows or, no, or the water companies can claim might be a better thing that they are not paying dividends when the rest of the world seems to think they are. Yeah. And what's really going on? It's not unique to the water companies. They've got complex holding structures. What is straightforwardly going on? Firstly, dividends are indeed being paid. And under company law, the only people to whom the companies can pay dividends is their owners. Their shareholders. Their shareholders are at the bottom of the pyramid of holding companies, but those companies in themselves are 100% owned by the ultimate shareholders. Therefore, any dividends paid to the immediate holding company is a benefit 100% to the ultimate shareholders. Whether they choose to take that out in dividends this year or not is uh, a matter for them and a matter for negotiating the political environment as well. But for example, I've just been looking at Campbell Water, which is the top company in the group that owns Thames Water. And in the last couple of years, the retained earnings of Campbell Group 
have increased by 590 million, which simply means that all those dividends flowing into the bottom of the pile emerge at the top of the pile in the group accounts as we've now got an extra 590 million. A rather simple question. Why do you think they imposed this absurd complex structure in the first place? I'd agree with what most people say, which is that deliberately to reduce transparency. One particular reason for reduction in transparency would be the use of shareholder loans. We've talked about the big increase in debt, yeah? But a significant amount of this debt is actually loans from the shareholders through other companies to the water companies themselves. That means that the interest payments on this mountain of debt that has been accumulated to pay the dividends is also going to the same shareholders. I presume you would say that they can fix the coupon on this debt where more or less wherever they like. Well, in, in principle, yes. I would say that, uh, this is my little thesis, that the three remaining quoted companies, their behaviour, certainly their financial behaviour, is marginally less bad than the rest. And I think that Jonathan has a proposal which I think would be worth airing. Yeah, I mean, I think these very complicated structures of simply make it, you know, as a regulated business, incredibly difficult to understand what companies' finances are, whether they're even solvent sometimes. My simple proposal is to require every water company, as a condition of its licence, to be listed on the stock market, to have to fulfil the requirements of the stock market to therefore recapitalise to a point would have to have a majority of its shares in public hands. It would need, therefore, to be solvent, so somebody would have to recapitalise it. If the existing owners were unwilling to do so, they would have to sell shares to the public at a price which would be attractive to the public. So you would, therefore, simplify the business because it would have the operating... You know, the regulated entity would then be in a public company where it would have to publish clear accounts. And the shareholders' interests would be clearly divorced from the actual operating business. And the shareholders would be in a majority, the external shareholders would be in a majority, so could keep an eye out for any of this monkey business. That's my proposal. Yeah. Well, the idea that the quoted companies, United Utilities, Seven Trent and Panel, behave better in some sense than the others... I'm not convinced on the figures I've looked at, and I don't think Carrie Yearwood found uh, there was much significant difference between them, either in terms of their investment performance or in terms of their willingness to extract dividends uh, above and beyond what was justifiable. In terms of investment behavior and control of pollution, all the people uh, who spent a lot of energy campaigning around rivers advised me that the United Utilities and Seven Trent, and I think even on, on, on the figures alone, Southwest Water, are at least as bad offenders as anybody else. Mm. Absolutely get that. You don't particularly like my idea. Which is yeah, I'm sorry about that. No, no, I think right. it's rather no, no, elegant. No, it's great. We don't want to have everyone agreeing about everything. So I then put the question to you, David. What would be your... It seems to me what you would prefer is to see them return to public ownership. Is that correct? Yeah, and I mean, I'd point out once again, not just me, but uh, three quarters of the great British public uh, want that as well. And so uh, it's, <laughs> <laughs> simply as, uh, as, as good Democrats, politicians should be working on that. 
The thing that's always thrown up in these uh, discussions about public ownership is the companies say, you couldn't possibly afford it. Remember, the, a lot of debate in 2019 was compensation has to be paid. One of the more surprising research discoveries of my career was to find that the law of England does not say compensation has to be paid, still less that compensation has to be paid on the basis. Oh. It does not. Oh. Still less. It, well, it, English law perhaps, but I think it, there's a general presumption under human rights legislation that seizing assets without compensation is... Uh, That's confiscation. Is, 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 is confiscation bad practice, it, not allowed? It, it, it may be, but I find it quite amazing how people are very confident that their own preferred views of what the law should be overrides what the statements of the Appeal Court of the UK, which has ruled on this twice in the last 30-odd years, and the European Court of Human Rights, which has a views on human rights, has also ruled on this twice in the last 35 years. Both of them say very precisely, the law of the UK is Parliament has the power to expropriate, full stop. Parliament is also able, if it wishes, to offer compensation on the basis in which it specifies... I, do, I just want to make one, two points. One is... It seems to me that the possibility, whatever lacunae might exist in the law, that it's one thing not paying the equity holders. I think you had that question discussed with Northern Rock, but it's another thing not paying the creditors. And the idea that the water industry would be expropriated from the banks that had lent 60 billion seems to me to be whatever, whatever the law may guide our, our legislators to believe would be a remote contingency. And the second thing is, almost all established practice from past nationalizations, it's absolutely true, there's no, there's no set way of determining how compensation should be calculated, and there's no certainty that equity holders will get anything. But there is an established kind of practice that compensation should be computed to see whether it should be paid. If compensation to the shareholders is what I was talking about and what the oh, okay. appeal was talking yeah. about and what the European Court of Human Rights are talking about. Okay. My assumption is what always been <laughs> the debt would be carried over to the new publicly owned companies. Yeah. We may well want to sue to all the people who extracted uh, benefit from that debt, but still, that, that would be the format of it. So what we're talking about is the compensation to shareholders and that okay. is and would be a matter for public debate and for parliamentary decision. That's the key point. Okay. I must we've say, got to, we've I, got to come out of this rabbit hole soon. I so. do find I do find this extraordinary. I mean, you are talking about confiscation, and if you don't like it, you can talk about it. But it's my decision in the end. So tough. That would be a terrible precedent to set for a country which prides itself on having a financial structure where you know where you are. To confiscate assets like that, why would they stop? They could start confiscate. They could start confiscating, you know, residential office blocks, residential blocks. Well, you know, you could go wherever you liked with it. It's could, it's it's not it's not Neil's capitalism. House. It's socialism. I'll give you the I, I, th I think a giveaway there, perhaps, Neil, is your use of the phrase, why would they stop? Whereas some people might say, why would we stop? But the answer is, we, 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 would, uh, we would do it because it would give us a much better way of running the water industry 
like the rest of the world does. That's why we would do it. I'm very keen to, to, to end on this sort of, uh, is that I think one thing we can all agree on, and it's one of the extraordinary things about privatisation, is that although there are enormous licences that were issued to each of the companies that ended up in this business or in the electricity business, no participant, no company has ever had a licence withdrawn for any reason whatsoever. That, to me, is something which shows that this system is broken and whatever destination we end up in, we basically need to change that. One big reason for that and one big obstacle to your proposals (laughs) for change is that every single licence of a water company has Mm. a section O, which has one clause in it. That clause says, this licence may be terminated by the Secretary of State just by giving 25 years' notice. Oh, well, 25 years, neither here nor there, really, is it? I mean, well, <laughs> 25 years. <laughs> that was A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Production and editing by Nick Hilton. And our sponsorship partner is Briefcase.News. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review it on your podcast app as that will help new listeners find us.